Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. And today, I'm going to let the esteemed John Ramsey introduce our guest. <laughs> this should be interesting. I, <laughs> thanks, Ronald. With that introduction, welcome to Nikki Bay. Nikki Beatty, welcome to Boxes and Lines. Um, or may I should do the, the British accent for hello, Governor. Um, Nikki, I'm sorry, I didn't. Uh, I didn't just prep you for just what you were. Out. That's all right. Neither of your accents are very good, but anyway. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. Now you, he, he, he's a big Ronan, hit over here Ronan with the Irish accent. More ammunition. Um, so Nikki and I have known each other for a while. We, uh, she is, um, I think, one of the best go-to people uh, when you have questions about um, market structure issues in Europe or in the UK. I guess those are two different things um, at this point. Um, but she has a long, distinguished uh, resume, including. Uh, so she's created. Uh, she's uh, has her own consulting firm um, called Market Structure Partners. Um, in addition to that, she also is a non-executive director of the FICC Market Standards Board, non-executive chairman of XTX Markets Limited, a firm that we know a fair about, about uh, non-executive chairman for Aquas Exchange, non-executive director of IRESS, a technology company, and I could go on and on. I'm also a member of an advisory committee for the European Securities Markets Authority. So I will leave I it at that. I kind of feel bad that she's got no, no association to IEX. What's going on? Uh, well, it's I, everybody I know, else, but... Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you on an advisory board for uh, IEX. It's clearly a gap in your resume. Um, well, but welcome. It's so nice to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no, we, we appreciate you having uh, joining us. We, we appreciate you having us on, I almost said. <laughs> but th <laughs> thanks for joining <laughs> our podcast. So I, I thought what I'd do is we, we'd kick it off with a, a pretty broad topic to leg into this, but uh, European market structure, because generally we've talked a lot about U.S. market structure on this podcast, but we have a whole horde of listeners, both in the industry and outside the industry. So we try to kind of uh, break this down and make it easily understandable. And, as, and then I'm going to ask you a broad question, but uh, kind of in short, how would you summarize the main differences between European and U.S. market structure? And in that answer, maybe how do the roles of uh, exchanges differ and also the impact of systematic internalizers and maybe explain uh, to the folks over here what, a, what an SI is, please. Yes, in two oh, minutes wow. or less, please. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, Clock there's starts now. Go, Nikki. That is a loaded and packaged question. I, I yeah. think I'll have forgotten all of it by the time I get to the end. But anyway, let, let's have a go. So, Just tell us whatever you want. <laughs> first, of all, first of all, you were asking um, the difference between the US and Europe. So let's start there. So um, look, I think the main difference is, um, you know, the US is one large homogenous market. And we talk about Europe as if it's also a large homogenous market, but it isn't. It's really a completely heterogeneous market made up of now 27 um, countries. So when laws get passed, um, you know, we have to find the lowest common denominator in negotiating what that law should be. And we have to accommodate everybody on that journey. So if you think about financial markets, some of the biggest differences in Europe, um, and I mean, between different European countries are things like pension reform. Um, you know, the Northern European markets are much more mature in the sort of pension funds and, and therefore the investment style is very different. It's very institutional style trading. But if you get into Southern Europe or Eastern Europe, you know, everything behind the exchanges is really driven by the retail market. 
Um, and so what people want for a retail market is very different. So there's a lot of discussion around whether or not we should have dark pools or delayed trade reporting. And that all comes from, you know, the sort of different stance that those markets have. So that's a major difference. We've got to accommodate all those views and try and get to, to one outcome. And then I think, you know, two of the biggest differences that sort of manifest themselves in the market structure. One is we don't have the equivalent of the DTCC. So you have one clearing and settlement infrastructure, at least for equities. So yep. if a competitive platform comes along um, and, and wants to start up tomorrow, it just goes and sits on top of the DTCC. There's no difference in the clearing and settlement costs that anybody pays. So it's all in the um, execution side of, of the business that the competition is. We don't have that. We've got multiple clearing and settlement um, infrastructures, you know, one per market pretty much. Um, so there's 27. Um, so that makes a big difference. And then the other thing is we don't have one big super regulator. Well, we, we do have a super regulator, but it doesn't have any teeth. So we've got the European Securities and Markets Authority, which is intended to be and is on its journey towards being the super regulator. But right now, it's completely reliant on the underlying uh, regulatory authorities to enforce any rules. So um, we don't really have pan-European regulatory enforcement. So I'd say those are probably the biggest sort of differences. Um, then you asked me, I think about exchanges and systematic internalizers. Um, and I'd say, look, exchanges are pretty similar um, yeah. to the US, you know, they, they're looking for listings. Um, so on the primary side, the perspective is, is similar. The US has got, you know, a big more of a technology skew, but overall they're doing the same thing. And secondary markets, I think equity exchanges are following the same path as the US. You know, we've got a very well entrenched central limit order book uh, mechanism in most markets with strong algorithmic and high frequency trading, very evident. Um, but um, we don't have things like a trade through rule in Europe. Um, so exchanges are not mandated to forward um, orders to other venues. Um, and then a systematic internalizer is really um, someone who is allowed to operate a like the equivalent of what you think of as a single dealer platform. Okay. And in order to do that, they have to comply with certain rules under the, the MIFID regulation. And that means they have to make their quotes um, transparent to the market, but they're basically dealing in an OTC manner. Um, and so, um, and there's various, you know, they have to be doing it on a systematic basis in order to feel that they qualify for these rules. But the idea is, so actually, if I just backtrack for a second, if I go back to 2007, pre the first round of MIFID, basically, in many European markets, it was against the law to send your orders to anywhere other than an exchange. And in the UK, it was different, you could easily go and do OTC orders without any problem. Um, the idea of systematic internalizers was sort of formalized when MIFID came in to create transparency around people who wanted to trade OTC as a sort of quid pro quo for exchanges that complained it was unfair to allow them into the market. You know, a, a way to describe MIFID is basically um, it is the regulation that was meant to harmonize the way financial markets work across Europe because everybody had different regulations and this was meant to bring us all together and govern the way that our market should work. And that was the original impetus for MIFID 1 uh, in 2007. And why, why was MIFID 2 introduced? 
so um, so it's quite common after regulation has been introduced to decide to to go back and review it and then uh, <laughs> yes and then do, do more work. Um, so it was that the main reason it was introduced actually was to introduce other asset classes. So MIFID one was basically pretty much in terms of pre and post trade transparency about the equity market. It didn't really put any obligations on people who are trading bonds or currencies or anything else. Um, to to do anything so it was just governing equities really and then MIFID 2 in 2018 was um, it added other asset classes it didn't add spot fx um, but pretty much everything else from bonds cash bonds to derivatives um, of all sorts were included in that um, intending to make greater transparency around the the markets and the venues that, that traded in those assets yeah, yeah yes. that, uh, well, yes. that's helpful. And that was, I was going to ask in particular about transparency and lit markets, as you know, one of the um, current hot topics in the US is concern about the migration of more and more trading off of exchanges and in ways where it's, there's less price transparent, uh, price discovery and transparency. Is, is, that, is that a concern there? Is the level of off-exchange trading uh, uh, less in Europe or is the trend something that people are worried about there? Uh, well, the answer is no one really knows because we don't have a consolidated tape in mm. Europe. So we don't have any official source of information of data. And so people use the lack of clear information to talk their own book so the exchanges would have you believe that 50 percent of the european market was done off exchange um, but that reality is once you start cleaning up all the data and the problem is the data is not good quality and it's not very clean but once you start properly filtering all the trades that have gone in there like give ups and things that don't really belong in in sort of that estimate of market share um, the, the figure is probably closer to about 14%, but no one can agree on it. So there's lots of fake news around what actually gets done off exchange. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of focus on transparency, but everybody's using it to, you know, for their own benefit. So the exchanges are stirring sure. up a lot of discussion around, oh, the market's not transparent. It's terrible. All this stuff that's been done in dark pools to deflect from criticisms around them for not giving up data to consolidated tape. So nobody right. really knows what the answer is. <laughs> but I think the number is is much more inflated when you look at the dirty data versus when the data is actually cleaned up. Yeah, is, imagine is there... that market participants trying to grandstand uh, on these issues. That would never happen over here. <laughs> never happen here. <laughs> I see my nose getting bigger. So uh, a key difference, obviously, as we've been talking about quite a bit on this podcast, is uh, the lack of a consolidated tape in Europe. Could you take a quick stab at just explaining for our listeners what that actually means, please? I, I think Ronan actually doesn't know what it means. He's trying to. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'm please, taking I notes. Have... I have my pen out now. Yeah. Shut up, John. So, Over to you, uh, Nikki. So what does it mean? So. In, in the US, so basically what we have is um, in a market, so what you see across NYSE, NASDAQ, SIBO, all the markets that are out there is you see all of the pre-trade information. So before you trade, you see the prices at which people are willing to deal. And after people have traded, you see the prices at which they, they trade it. And so, um, and that becomes consolidated in the US by a vehicle that is the Consolidated Tape Association. Um, and everybody can see the entirety of the market at any time. And if you want to know what the average daily volume is, you just refer to that. 
in Europe, um, we don't have that. We have multiple um, exchanges plus a lot of off-exchange trading going on, um, but nobody is bringing all of that data together. So it is impossible to see all of the information about the market before you want to trade, um, unless you have extraordinary hundreds of millions of, of uh, euros to um, collate all this data, it's impossible to see it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you don't get that view before you want to trade and you don't get the view of what's happened after you've traded. So you, you basically have to bring all that data yourself together. You have to pay for it. You have to negotiate all the legal contracts to get that data. So you have to be a pretty big market participant to be able to do that for yourself. Yeah, it's pretty messy. See, John, you learned something today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Appreciate it. You're edifying me. Is there, is there any, Nikki, you were saying earlier about like, is it pronounced asthma? Uh, yes. So is, is there any thought given to them having real like regulatory governance over all 27 markets so that something like consolidated tape could be done? Or is that just a pipe dream with so many countries involved? Um, well, so we don't, by the way, for full transparency, we, we wrote the study for the um, we were appointed to write the study for the European Commission around the consolidated tape. And so um, our view after speaking to over 200 market participants um, in Europe and the US, including yourselves, was, you know, we, we could create a consolidated tape here. It doesn't require ESMA to be, it would be helpful if ESMA was a super regulator and had some teeth, yeah. but actually there's different solutions. So just parking the data issue for a second, you asked me, is ESMA on a path um, to become that super regulator? Well, maybe, I mean, ultimately, you know, that's what the whole European Union is about, isn't it really? It's like trading off individual country power and giving it to a super regulator. So as you can imagine, none of the underlying domestic regulators are voting for that as a good idea because, you know, where are the jobs and is everything going to go to Paris or Frankfurt, etc. So it's hugely political. But yeah, I mean, ESMA is on a path to do that. And if I go back, ESMA didn't exist 10 years ago. So, you know, it's come from nowhere to being a more meaningful organization and it's still moving on that trajectory. And it has been given more powers in the law, but it's still not, it's still a long way from being a regulator with real teeth. Right. So you, you've been talking about um, ESMA and the European system. Um, the, uh, the, the UK uh, obviously is kind of in some sense its own system and you um, pay attention to that too in the advent of, uh, COVID, of uh, Brexit. Uh, COVID's provided its own. So how's all that going? <laughs> so, um, well, look, um, so in some ways you could say, well, how's it all going? Well, on January the 1st, all pan-European trading just went straight into Europe, pretty much anything that wasn't UK related. Um, and you could say, well, it's fallen off a cliff. But um, the truth is, um, the reason it went there on January the 1st is because there is a law that says that um, basically, if you're trading in, if you sit in Europe and you're trading on behalf of European investors, you have to trade on a European venue. So you can't trade in the UK unless you're Got buying it. a UK listed stock. Um, and so that, that was provided the immediate impetus for that. But I, I think it's got a long way to play itself out. So, you know, one, I'm not a believer, even though I didn't want Brexit to happen, I'm not a believer that anti-competitive rules like that are actually good for the market or good for end investors. So that's gonna have to sort itself out. Um, 
And the other thing is, you know, the UK is free to move more quickly and it probably will diverge ultimately in terms of regulation. But, you know, we, we can't diverge overnight. We've got to write the rules. We've got to write the laws. We've got to consult. Um, but ultimately, it could probably be more nimble. Well, it definitely could be more nimble than the EU negotiating with 27 countries. So the UK can now just do what it wants to do around financial markets. Interesting. And before we were talking about something called petrol, right? So petrol is what <laughs> they call gas. I grew up in Ireland, so I know, I know, I know all these names, but there's, there's actually a, a petrol shortage at the gas stations now. Um, not, not due to uh, lack of petrol, but due to lack of drivers as it relates to Brexit. So it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a real world example of the impact of something like that. And you had to deal with that today, correct? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's just one example of what Brexit has caused us, really. Um, you know, we had so many immigrants here working in the UK who've now all, or not all, but many of them have left and gone home because they don't feel welcome here or because they can't get visas. And the result of that is we can't get workers to do multiple jobs. So one of them is driving um, fuel trucks, the other one's driving, not driving, sorry, but, you know, restaurants, hospitals, care homes, we're just really, really short of people um, to do the jobs that are needed. So yeah, Britain is in a bit of a gridlock and it's all rather depressing at the moment. Yeah, I might say they could try to hire Irish people to come down and do the job, but that's not going to work. Uh, but I won't. But I won't. No. John I, Ramsey. <laughs> that's all right. We'll edit that out. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, Nikki, what do you think in, in terms of hot topics over there, um, what are issues most concerned about? There's obviously a lot of focus in the U.S., as you know, on the growth of retail uh, participation and interest. Um, there's concern about kind of gamification of trading, issues about payment for order flow and conflicts when people route orders and whether retail investors are being well served by that. Um, are those issues uh, front and center there as well, or do they have a, a different kind of, um, do they take on a different kind of cast? So, um, well, so, so if you ask me what issues, you know, data, data, and data um, are, are really the key issues and then outages, but we'll come back to that. So just <laughs> on, um, on the retail trading and payment for order flow, I mean, there has been a lot of discussion here, particularly post Robin Hood. I mean, those in the industry discussed it for years, but, you know, something like Robin Hood comes along and then everybody suddenly thinks they want to talk about it. So uh, it's not a new topic for many of us, but um, it doesn't occupy the same amount of time here because um, one, actually in the UK, so I, if I refer back to what we talked about at the very beginning, where the UK, so Europe and uh, US have a different market structure, and I then said, actually, you know, for years, retail orders had were forced to go to the stock exchange. There was nowhere else they could go. There wasn't this sort of concept of these single dealer platforms or systematic internalizers. So no one really had conceived of this idea of payment for order flow um, in Europe. And so now, if I exclude the UK from that just for a moment. So now in Europe, there's a lot of discussion about payment for order flow because MIFID has allowed these systematic internalizers to emerge and potentially take flow off exchange. Um, 
And the truth is the law in Europe is pretty gray on payment for order flow, but ESMA who have no teeth, as we just discussed, have just come out and said, well, really payment for order flow is not a good thing. And it's a conflict of interest under MIFID, but who's going to enforce it? So, you know, there's a big question mark, but there's not huge amount of evidence of payment for order flow going on. If I then go to the UK, actually in the UK, we never had a rule about forcing flow, retail flow onto the exchange. And in fact, the UK market's a RFQ market, it's at market orders, very different to European on exchange limit order driven by the retail market. Um, and so we have had this concept of these single dealer platforms, um, and but payment for order flow is not allowed. So we don't have the same issues that you have. We do have some other issues where right. these, these people get price improvement, but they don't necessarily get the best price improvement. Um, you know, so there's some other issues going on, but payment for order flow isn't one of them. Yeah, and uh, you, you, as I'm sure you know, our uh, SEC chair, Gary Gensler, has made a point of saying that payment for order flow has uh, been banned in the UK, various other jurisdictions like Australia, I think. Maybe Canada and um, and we we talked about this earlier when Esma had sort of put out this statement not so long ago that I interpreted as kind of a shot across the bow, saying people who are thinking about kind of more broadly adopting this payment for order flow scheme, you may want to think again because uh, we think that poses all kinds of problems under MIFID and uh, you know um, it may be hard for you to justify it. Um, so you think that's that? Do you think that's what they were trying to do? And uh, and the only problem is who's going to enforce that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the case. So they've they've basically sort of said there's legislation that suggests that you shouldn't be doing this, which is MIFID, and it covers things like conflicts of interest. Now you guys need to go and interpret it and see what's happening in your own market. And then the national domestic regulators should be enforcing the rules. The question is, you know, how do they interpret it and how much? Um, how much they're even going to detect what's going on in their own markets because it takes time yeah. to uncover all of these things. So right. you, you brought it up a little bit earlier, but wanted to touch upon it a bit, if you wouldn't mind on, and it's probably something that was very top of mind last year to your clients, but outages. There was a lot of, uh, at least from our perception over here, a lot of press on uh, a lot of uh, outages. Do you see that conversation continuing? Um, does it only get attention when something goes wrong? Like what, what was going on in that world? So I think um, last year was probably a bit of a turning point. Um, so we've had outages before and nobody's ever really done anything about them. But last year we had so many and and also I think quite critically, you know, we had them during the closing auction and, you know. Really yeah, and by that I meant like exchange outages, which I know, you know, Nikki, but just so our listeners know what the hell I'm talking about. Sorry yeah, yeah, about sorry, yeah. exchange yeah. outages. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, we, we had a lot last year. And then I think that's really invigorated the debate around outages and what can we do? So, you know, the buy side has sort of put their hand up and said, well, actually, you know, there's an outage. We just put our feet up on, our, on the desk and don't do anything. And perhaps we should be more proactive. Um, <laughs> and some of the exchanges and the regulators sort of talking about what could be done in the event of an outage. But, you know, the reality is, you know, the, the, because we don't have a consolidated tape, um, it is tricky to manage. I'm not saying it's the panacea to the entire problem, but getting visibility of other market prices when a market goes down is, is actually really hard now. And the other thing is, even when there's an outage here, people 
can hide behind the fact that it looks like a trading halt to the market. So nobody knows whether the, the exchange is down or if there's actually a trading halt going on. And exchanges only really have direct phone calls to their customers, to their members, but they can't call up the entire market. So you've got a sort of Chinese whispers going on through the market of oh, what's happening, et cetera. Whereas if we just had a flag that immediately went up on a consolidated tape and told you what that was happening, that would be a starting point for people to start getting together and doing something different. So we've got lots of things to address, but it is a big problem. And I think it's getting more focus. So, so it sounds like uh, one focal point to a lot of the issues and problems is this fact you've mentioned several times, no consolidated tape. There are some efforts to create such a thing uh, in Europe, uh, but uh, where, where do those stand? That feels like a long, a long uh, lead time to create something like that. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so... Um... <laughs> So where are we at with that? Well, also first, just, just so you understand, um, MIFID sort of created s some legislation imagining that competitive, competi competitive consolidated tapes would emerge and we'd have all these different uh, tape providers out there. And the truth is none have emerged. So clearly the conditions are not right or not attractive for them. So then there's been this whole review of well, what, what needs to be uh, changed to to create that and there's a big debate going on about whether or not we should have a single consolidated tape provider or maintain these competitive this idea of competing tape providers my own view having spent a year well having spent a long career in financial markets and then a full year just analyzing this like i said interviewing people etc is the only solution is a single tape provider um, but of course, all the people who don't want that lobby against it and come up with all sorts of strange reasons as to why it's not a good idea. Um, and so I'm not sure what's going to change to increase the, the, the idea that competition is suddenly going to produce a tape. Um, we hope that by Christmas time, the European Commission, who are the policymakers, will have decided what route they want to go down. Um, and then we might have a bit more clarity on that. I think yeah. actually... Sorry, John. But no, 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 no. I was just going to say it's a, uh, you know, the only advice I would give you is that if you decide to go towards a single consolidated tape, don't put all of the exchanges in charge of governance because that's like turned into a total. No, look, in, in our study, we said absolutely that that's right. We, you know, we called out a lot of things that are wrong with the U.S. tape. We didn't agree with with many of the things, including the governance of the tape. And we said, you know, it's time yeah. to set set it differently. Um, and we envisage, so actually what I was going to say as well at the beginning when you asked me about the differences in market structure is, you know, the US has done very well. Um, it's not always perfect, but self-regulation is an accepted practice with things like FINRA that oversees the brokers and the OTC data, etc. We don't have anything like that in Europe and the Europeans are very anti the idea of self-regulation. So, you know, our view as, as having done the study was that actually there should be a single tape provider and it should be run by a self-regulatory organization. But the members of that organization should include not only the brokers, but the exchanges and uh, other people who have an interest and put them all in a room together and should have governance, equal governance between the members. Um, and then there shouldn't be any one community that was allowed to dominate in that governance. Um, you know, I feel that's quite a lot for the European policymakers to bite off and chew. So I'm not yeah. sure where it's going to end up. Got it. 
Um, well, one other topic that's very big over here, of course, is the um, is the, the the question of ESG investing, which has many different aspects to it. But but you know, one of the <clears throat> but one of the aspects is the very strong drive on the part of investors, retail and institutional, um, for more information about uh, uh, what are the companies I'm investing in, um, what are their policies around climate change and various other aspects of ESG, which can be sort of fairly broad. Do you see that interest, including by, in the institutional investment um, community uh, as strong uh, in, in Europe? And how is that translating in terms of what, what people are disclosing about uh, their uh, both uh, corporate uh, policies around this stuff and um, investment funds um, and their disclosures about what kind of screening they do. So absolutely. I mean, I think everyone is just talking ESG. Um, and the problem is that we are all talking ESG, but there's so many things to talk about. No one's sure, quite sure if we're getting greenwashed yeah. or whatever else. Uh -huh. So I think we've all got the same issues at the moment. Um, and I see it as well because I sit on the boards of various companies, both private and public companies. And, you know, as, as chair of a company that has to put out its annual accounts, I'm saying, well, what are we saying about ESG? You know, I'm asking all the questions as well. So I see both sides of it. Um, but I think we're a long way from solutions. So I think we're all going to get sold a lot of stories that might not prove to be true at the end of it all. Um, but, uh, you know, the good thing is everybody's making an effort and is focused on it. And I think even asking questions of people is is helping um helping to focus the mind on these issues i saw somebody actually various people trying to do things here but somebody's trying to set up a trading group that looks at esg issues and one of the things i looked at on the board of um you know of of, of an exchange here that's a listed company i started saying well what about our suppliers and the data centers and and of course we don't really have much power with those data centers right. we sort of end up being where everybody else is. But if the whole industry starts asking those questions, then that's actually a really good thing. So we're definitely all talking about it. Um, I feel like we're going to end up with exactly the same data issues that we've got that we just discussed around consolidated data. So someone needs to set standards and really that would be better if it yeah. was one centralized body. Someone probably needs to at least clean some of the data before it's sort of used. Because at the moment, we've got all these people who want to set their own benchmarks, obviously, to make money from it. Uh, whose benchmark should we use, et cetera. So I do actually feel both of those topics could be addressed in the same way. Um, but yeah, massive focus on it. Yeah. Um... And, and one last thing that I will mention that I know is a, a huge focus here is uh, crypto investing, the growth of crypto assets, what the status of, you know, whether investors are being adequately protected. Um, that's something that, again, Gary Gensler over here has been fo uh, focused on a lot lately. Um, and, uh, and the regulatory status uh, of those kinds of products. Are there similar kinds of questions and in um, uncertainties around what regime uh, applies and um, is are, are retail investors uh, as is there as much proliferation of uh, crypto products over there and are the same kinds of concerns present? Um, I guess it's all relative. I mean, I, I don't know what proliferation you're seeing versus here because there's not a huge amount of data. There's yeah. a lot of talking about it, but um, 
yeah, I mean, I think there's just been, I think COVID particularly has just accelerated this whole sort of trend, people sitting at home and particularly in, in the sort of generation sort of just coming out of school and uni, just why not? You know, my friends are doing it, let's all do it. Um, I think that um, there is a lot of focus and concern around uh, what's going on. I mean, none of it is really happening in a regulated environment. Um, there are a few platforms here that are trying to create, um, you know, get regulatory approvals. Um, I think some of them have already been knocked back. I mean, it concerns me, some of the stories, I mean, we're in the industry, I hear people setting up platforms all the time, but it does greatly concern me, some of the stories that I hear, but I think this isn't gonna go away. I think, you know, we have to address uh, a lot of the, the whole cryptocurrency debate. Um, and now we see institutions trying to get into it. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of polarized views. Um, so it's going to be really tricky to navigate, but I think governments have absolutely got to get on top of this um, in some way, shape or form. There's definitely going to be an awful lot of fallout. Um, it probably already has been. So uh, I think they do need to get to grips with it. And I see a hunger from central banks and from, um, from regulators to understand the whole area better. So uh, th there's there's never really a, an intelligent way to transition to this next question, but it's a question we ask all our guests, Nikki. So uh, one of our wrap-up questions is, can you tell us your favorite Wall Street movie and why? Um, <laughs> so we went, uh, we went from ESG to crypto. Yeah, I was like, movie. oh, wow, okay. Isn't there a movie? It's a seamless ESG? transition. Absolutely. Seamless. Keep, keep, keep yeah. you on your toes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be exciting, wouldn't it? A movie about ESG or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, I don't know. I'm probably a bit cliched in terms of when I think of the Wall Street movies, but I guess for pure entertainment, things like Wolf of Wall Street or um, uh, The Big Short. But I, I don't know. I, I sort of worry that I know that we've been laughing and all the rest of it, but I don't know. There's a sort of glamorization of of and dramatization of things that are about greed and deceit and probably bad yep. things that are in our industry. So, <laughs> so if I really nailed it and said the most memorable film for me was actually the um, documentary Inside Job, which was about the financial crisis. Mm. Um, and I think there we saw laid bare some of the conflicts of interest and the sort of duplicities right on camera. Um, and, and so, you know, if I go back and think about things that really struck a chord and, and made me think more profoundly about the industry that we're in, um, I think that was the one. Nice. I, a I profound think answer. We haven't, we haven't most... got that before. Yeah. No, I think that may be the most uh, in, uh, interesting and thoughtful answer that we've ever had to that uh, question, which means I think you ought to get an extra pair of socks at least. Uh, yeah, did, oh, did you know, you know something? No, no one leaves yeah. the podcast without getting nothing. And today you're getting your very own pair of boxes and line socks. And we okay, promise well, they're I'm not sure. in men size large. We'll make sure yeah, that they. Yeah, yeah, that would be. That that would be that I do have big feet. I just, you know, I just, you know, trying to point out that I'm not necessarily as big as a size 13 or whatever you have in the US. But anyway. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. But um, look, it's it's been great having you on. We appreciate you joining us. And John, are you gonna do your terrible accent? To... Thank you so much, Nikki, for coming out the boxes and lanes. Come back again. <laughs>